Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, uh, having considered a general introduction last time, uh, we'll now look at the preface and the first commandment, which will be the first uh, of ten sermons on the Ten Commandments. So just three verses. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no no other gods before me. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, uh, we ask you, as your word is uh, now uh, read and preached, that uh, you would, through the preaching, give us a sense, as Ezra did, of the meaning of the words Lord, these are solemn words which were placed in the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat. Uh, These are words which are valid even today. And we ask you, O God, that we would take these to heart as your very own words to your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin to parse out the law one by one, one commandment uh, by another, I want to point out here in uh, this second sermon, or the first sermon on the commandments, that we are still only introducing it since the preamble or the preface and the first commandment are really just introducing the whole law. And here I must confess my dependence on Calvin's Institutes. If you've read them, uh, you know he has a section on the law, and particularly uh, in that section he expounds the Ten Commandments. If you've read those, then you know uh, that almost, or you will know, that almost nothing I say here will, will be new to you. But I would remind you that it is never the duty of the theologian, and still less the pastor or the preacher, to be original. Only that he may present those same old truths afresh to a new age. And so what Calvin said about the Ten Commandments is as relevant today as it was in his own day. And one of the things that I've found is that his words uh, are especially relevant in this sense, something I've pointed out before, something I find out again and again. I, for as much as I quote Calvin, I haven't read that much Calvin. I know that's hard to believe, but uh, given how much I quote him. But I, I, I notice, uh, being very familiar with our confessional standards, that the more I read Calvin, the more everything that is found in the confessions is found, or the confession is found in Calvin. And so to read Calvin, who, was writ, who wrote uh, well before the Confession and the Shorter Catechisms were written, is really to read those, confession, uh, those catechisms and confession in advance. Well, my first point has to do with the structure of the laws. We are here at the beginning. You notice there is a preface and then the commands follow, which is interesting. We ought to ask, what is the purpose of the preface? Uh, too often in thinking of the Ten Commandments, we begin with the First Commandment, but that isn't right. If you're familiar with the Shorter Catechism, you will notice, and again, you'll find this in Calvin, that he, they begin with the preface. What is the preface to the Ten Commandments? That's the Shorter Catechism question. Well, look and see what God is saying here. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bunch. That isn't a command, that's a statement. He's declaring once more who he is in himself, which has been really, I think, the great theme of the book of Exodus. I am the Lord. That's what God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And his identity as Yahweh, the Lord, is, as I say, the great theme, the great unfolding theme and the great privilege of these people to know. 
When God says, I am the Lord, that's how the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord. What is he saying? Well, he is declaring his sovereignty and his lordship. His sole right to govern and to determine what is right. In other words, what God is saying at the outset is that there isn't anyone else who is fit to give this law, only him. Even the laws of man are valid only insofar as they reflect this law. There was never a man who was able to give a law which was valid. Only God. And yet there would be no way to know this law if God did not reveal it to us. Until he makes his will plain to us, we but grope in the, in the dark like unreasoning beasts. There's no way to know his will until he makes it known. And so in speaking and in revealing, we find yet another instance of his grace and his condescension. The fact that God would even make his will known to man rather than leave him in his sin to perish. And then to express that will by way of covenant. I am the Lord, your God. You see, God is not only stating who he is, but who he is to them and who he is to us. I am the Lord, your God. So that's the next thing. Who he is to us. He's our God. And he was their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And why did he do this? Did he free them from the bondage of Egypt just so that they could sin to their heart's desire? It would appear at times they thought it was really so, but... That isn't why he did it. The reason he freed them from bondage is so that they might know him as their Lord. And so that they might serve him at his command. And so, as he states his lordship and his saving power here in the preface, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, I am the Lord your Savior. He does so as a way of underscoring the need for obedience. If we, if we wish to obey the Lord, how else can we hope to do so except in the way that he prescribes? And if we wish to express our gratitude to, uh, to him in saving us, the, th- the same thought must occur to us. And yet here we are also aware of two cardinal errors which man is constantly guilty of with regard to the will of God and the commandments of God. One is that he is never content with God's law. And so he always seeks for something more. He always devises something new and puts in in, in place of God's law his uh, his own new device. And thus man becomes a God unto himself and breaks the first commandment over and over. Man would be ruled by what he deems is right rather than what God declares as his will. Man is ever wise in his own eyes. Calvin says, Uh, That even though God states his will so plainly here, this is the quote, we nevertheless are not content with it, but go to extraordinary lengths to fashion and devise one good work after another. We always look for something more. Of course, we know uh, from the Gospels that the Pharisees were especially guilty of this, that they were honoring, Jesus says, their traditions and setting them up as commands in the place of God's commands. Setting their own teaching that is in the place of the word of God. But it's easy, you know, to pick on the Pharisees. I think we also have to acknowledge and Calvin acknowledges that every one of us is guilty of this and that we are more like the Pharisees than perhaps at times we are happy to admit that we are guilty of the same tendency as they. Those who are always seeking some better way of our own devising to live 
than the simple way that God outlines here in the Ten Commandments. Well, the next error or iniquity with regard to this point is ingratitude. What God is really telling us here in the preface, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and thus I want you to obey me, is that gratitude is the wellspring from which obedience flows. And that without gratitude, obedience is impossible. He wants us to be thankful. And that if we are thankful, there will be no lack of obedience to his will. For out of our gratitude to him, we will seek every way we can to do what is pleasing to him. And in this, we will find no better rule than his own, as outlined here in the Ten Commandments. But... Ingratitude is as common as any other sin, and it is perhaps the commonest sin in the whole world. God could part the sea before our very eyes, and still we would grumble. Does not Israel teach us this? Men are not thankful, and so they are not obedient. Well, there's only one remedy for this, and that is to recall always what the Lord has done for us. To remember not only that he is the Lord our God, but also... That he is our savior. And so long as he appears to us. As our savior. And so long as we remember. All that he has done for us as our savior. And make that the basis of our obedience. Then we will be prepared to obey him. But not in any other way. Now if God is revealing himself to us as the Lord and our savior. As appears in the preface, we equally see why the first commandment is what it is and why it is first. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, you have to take the preface and the first commandment together. I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. What God is asking in the first commandment is only that we acknowledge this ourselves, that there are no other gods but him, that he is the Lord, our God. But there are endless ways that we fail to do this. The commonest is that we forget his law. That we prefer our will to his. But true piety, as Calvin says, and as is expressed in this law, is to prefer his will to ours. Thy will be done. It is to go not in the way our hearts would lead us, but in the way that his will tells us to go. That is what it means to have no other gods before him. It is to walk in the way of his commandments. It is to express a constant preference for his will over our own or anything else, anything at all, anything that might become between us and God and assume the chief place in our hearts and wills. That is what idolatry consists of. It is to give the throne of our hearts to another. And that is exactly what God is telling us here not to do. Have no other gods before me. Indeed, what he's really saying is have no other gods at all beside him. But especially let nothing at all in the whole world come before him as having the place of preference and priority for whatever has the first place in your hearts. That is your God. It is your master that rules you. Of course, we see Jesus talking about this in the Gospels. He says a man cannot have two masters, either either he will serve one or the other. He cannot serve both. It's so simple and so obvious. And that's what God is saying here. Either I will be the Lord to you or else you must serve another. You will either acknowledge and serve me as the Lord or you will not. So, so no man can ever hope to keep this law unless his commitment is to the Lord and no other. 
And so here we have at the outset a crucial test. How do we really feel about God? Do we view him as described in the preference as uh, the preface? I mean, the Lord, the savior of his people. As my Lord and savior. Or have we placed other gods before him? Does his kingdom and its righteousness occupy the supreme place and the first place in our lives? And thus the cardinal pursued a name of all our doings and desires, as Jesus describes in Matthew chapter six. What kind of disciples are we? Well, how can we know? I think there's only one way to know whether you uh, whether you are keeping the first commandment, whether he is really your Lord. And that is simply whether you are prepared to keep these Ten Commandments. For there is expressed his own righteousness and his own will for his people. He outlines those things which are pleasing to him. And so it's obvious by these laws who are those who wish to please him. The man who loves this law and is committed to keeping it for the Lord's sake. Because he is the Lord and because he is our savior. That is the man who has no other gods before the Lord. But everyone else we see here at the outset. Everyone else is an idolater. And so that's why this command comes first. Without beginning here, the other commands are rightly ignored. Whereas the man who obeys the first is prepared to obey all the rest. Well, next we see the extent of the law. I think that is also something that stands out very clearly here at the outset in the preface and the first commandment. Already in a single command, God has demanded everything of us. There is nothing that could be more demanding of us than this single command. You shall have no other gods before me. Something which is later expressed like this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And by our Lord in Matthew 22. What is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You see, it's the same structure, the preface, the first commandment. See who he is. Understand what your duty is as a result. It's stated negatively in the Ten Commandments, no other gods. Here it's stated positively, you shall love the Lord your God. Jesus tells us in Matthew, well, love the, God, love the Lord your God with all that you are. And Jesus tells us the same thing in what he calls the great commandment. In essence, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. God would have us to acknowledge that he alone is the Lord. And then as a result of that, to love him with all of our heart and all of our life and all that we are. And so really the whole law is summed up in this one commandment. But then we might ask, what is meant by love? What does it mean to love the Lord your God, with all that you are. Well, love involves three things. Primarily, first, commitment. If you think of what God is describing here, more than anything else, it is a commitment to him, given his commitment to us. God has bound himself to us, and he would have us bind ourselves to him. He would have us to see this relationship as too precious to lose and fear lest anything should compromise it or get in the way. Like the jealous husband for the love of his wife, the godly Christian allows no one and nothing to get between him and the Lord he loves. He forsakes all others, as Jesus says, and forsakes all for God's sake in the kingdom. Thus, Jesus also says, if you love me, 
You will keep my commandments. So it involves second obedience. Again, that is the point I've been making. That's the point of the Ten Commandments. The man who keeps the first commandment keeps them all. His whole life is a reflection of his desire to obey God. But third, in speaking of the love which the Lord requires of us in Deuteronomy or in Exodus or in the Gospels, we cannot deny that there is an element of emotion. There is an element of the heart as we typically speak of it, which cannot be overlooked. God would have our heart. He would have the whole of the heart. He would have what the Puritans called the affections, our desires. He would have the first place in our desires. The thing that we not only love, but that we love most. He would have us to love no one more than him. Can you husbands who so cherish your wives, and you had better cherish your wives, can you honestly tell them, I love you, but I love him more? Nothing before him. Not even that which you love most in this world. Everything else, beloved, is idolatry. We could also say along these lines that everything uh, that um, that there is uh, a priestly aspect to what we are considering here, as stated in chapter 19, verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, in saying that I'm not going to let anything come between me and the Lord. He is describing, uh, or, or I am describing in my commitment to keep the first commandment, my priestly office in the kingdom of God. That there is something holy which I have to guard from intrusion. For Adam, that was the garden of Eden, the sanctuary of the Lord. And he was set up as a priest. If only he had guarded it against the intruder of the serpent, but he didn't. Well, to keep the first commandment is something like that. Every time the serpent tries to get in and get in between you and the Lord, you have to kick him out. You have to guard the place of the Lord as something is holy in your heart. Chase him off. No other gods. Only the Lord. The next thing we might notice as we begin uh, to look at the commandments is the right way to interpret the law. Again, this is something I find in Calvin. I find it in the confession and the the catechisms in particular. Having uh, seen the purpose and the extent of the law, we notice in each that God is either forbidding or he is commanding. I, I already noticed the negative aspect of the first commandment, but then in the Shema, it's the same thing, only it's stated positively. He is forbidding or he is commanding. Either you shall or you shall not. He either requires or forbids. But we ought to realize that in reality, God is requiring and forbidding something in each command. Which is why our shorter catechism, if you're familiar with it, in its exposition of the Ten Commandments, which is by far the lengthiest section of uh, the catechism, describes the commandments like this. It says what is required in the first commandment, it gives an answer. Then what is forbidden, and it gives an answer. And so it does with each of the commandments. And yet here we see in the first commandment, God only states what is forbidden, that we should have any other gods before him. By forbidding this... He expresses his displeasure with the sin of idolatry. But equally, and you see here our rules of interpretation come in, equally he tells us by this uh, restriction what is required, what it is he really desires of us positively. And that is that he alone be acknowledged as as the true God and as our God and how he delights that we should have him as our God and the only God. 
And so we might do this with all the rest, apply these same rules of interpretation. We notice, for instance, Jesus doing this in the Sermon on the Mount, especially with the second table of the law. He tells us that to have anger in our heart is to kill our brother. To have lust is to commit adultery. To speak in complicated ways rather than plainly is to be a liar and so forth. This is how we must interpret the law. Not contenting ourselves with a formal and outward obedience, but asking ourselves, what is God really commanding? And what is his purpose in commanding? And thus, what is he forbidding? And it is his purpose in each command that we must seek to discern. And then having discerned it, we must plumb the depths of so spiritual a law. In many ways, that's what we're seeking to do here in these many sermons. But we must also realize that it takes the whole of one's life to really do this. If we look later on uh, in the Pentateuch, Moses tells the people that you, you have to keep the law with you. And you have to talk about it in your homes and you have to teach it to your children. It's a lifetime of study to really understand God's law. Don't breeze through the Ten Commandments and then go on with your day. In fact, I'll just ask you again whether you even know the Ten Commandments. Could you recite them to me? Have you stored them in your heart even in that preliminary way? It requires a lifetime of study. But as we study the law, we not only come to a knowledge of God who is revealed in the law, himself, his righteousness, his will, but we also come through the study to a knowledge of ourselves. And what we learn through this study, let us confess, is not so encouraging. Who can sit under this first commandment and not discover this about himself? That he is a lawbreaker, that he is an idolater, that he breaks the word constantly in, uh, in, in thought, word, and deed, or he breaks the law constantly. The way the law deals with us, once we realize what it consists of, is not at first a happy experience. No man has ever dealt with the law or allowed the law to deal with him and not come to this conclusion that I am a lawbreaker. And before we ever got to the second commandment, we already saw this about ourselves. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, Paul says. It holds us accountable. It makes us conscious of our guilt. It makes us appear in our own eyes to be sinners. In other words, it humbles us utterly and completely. It makes us like the man Jesus describes in the Beatitudes, who is poor in spirit and who mourns. And who hungers and thirsts for righteousness because he has none. Here is the true knowledge of self which we discover by the law. And even by this single command. Where does this leave us? Well it leaves us with the lesson I spoke of last time. As expressed in Galatians chapter 3 verse 21. The righteousness which God requires does not come by the law. If it did. Well, let me let me try to read that verse rather than uh, let me read that verse. I mean, rather than try to remember it. Galatians chapter three, verse twenty one. He says this. Is the law then against the promises? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But of course, we know there isn't and there wasn't. Romans chapter three, verses twenty one through twenty four. He says something very similar. Very similar. 
But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all, on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. No, righteousness could never be found by the, by the law, not even by this law. Not now that man has become sinful and full of transgression. And nothing is so useful in making him see this, that he is a sinner and that he falls short of the glory of God, than the law itself. And thank God, therefore, that righteousness may be found elsewhere. Or else, if the law was all we had, it could never be found. Man would ever fall short of the glory of God and perfection, as stated in this law. And so we would be undone and condemned utterly with no hope. But on the other side of these negative statements, we find in Galatians and Romans that God has manifested his own righteousness in another way, not only through the law, but now in the gospel, which is a more hopeful manifestation of that righteousness to us sinners who have come to a kind of self-knowledge and even self-loathing through the law, namely the righteousness of faith in Jesus Christ. That is to say, the righteousness of justification by faith alone. But we only ever come to see this, Galatians 3, Romans 3, through that self-knowledge which comes by the law. And yet even then, having come to faith in Jesus Christ and then experienced the righteousness of God through faith and not by works of the law, even then I think we are brought back to this very law. I mean, the first commandment and even to the preface itself. For the gospel is nothing if not a revelation of Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of his people. There is no way to understand who he is and his claim on our lives and why it is his death was able to accomplish what it was, namely our salvation, unless we see this, that he is the Lord and that there are no other God, that there is no other God beside him. And thus, as the Lord the one who claims an exclusive place in our lives, a place which no one else is able to claim. When you read the Gospels, what you notice is that he was as demanding. Jesus was as demanding of his disciples as God ever thought to be in the Old Testament. And why? Because it was the same Lord who would have no other gods before him. Jesus came not to set this law aside or any other, but to express it more fully. How can man come to know the Lord as his God and to serve him and no other? In many ways, that's the great question that the Gospels answer. And the answer is this, only by coming to Jesus. And yes, in doing so, a man will realize all at once that even then he's guilty of idolatry. That we are transgressors still. But we find in coming to Jesus and ascribing to him, along with the early Christians, the name Lord... For that is the most primitive form of Christian profession. Jesus is Lord. And whoever does so as a Christian in coming to him. We will find mercy. In Jesus we discover. The Lord is full of mercy. Abounding in loving kindness. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. As the Lord later declares about himself in Exodus chapter 34. And so we discover in him, if you think back again uh, to the experience I described as described in the Beatitudes, sitting under the first commandments, we discover in him 
Riches in our poverty. Joy in our mourning. And a righteousness that satisfies our thirsting and our hunger. Why? Because he is the Lord and because he is our Savior. All that we ever wanted and discovered we lacked through a self-knowledge which comes by the law, we find in him. But you see, that's only possible once we see this about him, that he is the Lord. For he can never satisfy us if he is anything less. Yes, but if he is, and he most certainly is, then there is no lack of ours which he cannot match by his power and by his love and by his grace. Will you find it out for yourself? Will you not come to him and find out what he is capable of? Have you yet had the experience of the disciples on the boat having seen his great power over uh, the wind and the sea asking the question, who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Even my own heart, which is a restless evil, obeys him. Who could Jesus possibly be seeing all that he can do and all that he is but the Lord? And if he is the Lord, ought I not to obey him? You see what I mean when I say we're brought back to the first commandment in coming to him. Does he not, as the Lord, have an exclusive right over all of my life and all that I am? So then suppose I really have come to him and discovered his saving power. What then do you think happens to the first commandment? Do you think in forgiving our transgression of this command? Yes, we are idolaters. Yes, Jesus is grace for idolaters. Those who confess it, those who come to him. Do you think he sets it aside? I tell you, he does not. Still, he says, I am the Lord, your God. I want you to obey me. I want you to have no other gods before me. I want and am satisfied with nothing less than the first place in your life. Read the Gospels and tell me if that isn't what he says. You shall have no other gods before me. For whoever does, whoever places anything before him, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. And he's not fit to be my disciple. John, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 through 39. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You see, even the best things. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. There are many such hard statements in the Gospels. And I don't think there's really any way to ever understand them except in light of the first commandment. Jesus giving it the fullest and the truest expression it ever had. Yes, hard sayings, but not nearly so hard. Once you realize who Jesus is. And once you realize that to give up idolatry and to really ascribe lordship to Jesus Christ alone is what it is to come to him and find salvation. And that there is no other way to come to him and find salvation but to realize that he is the Lord and there is no other. It was only a short while after this that Jesus said famously in Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take the two passages together, and you'll have a grasp of what it is to come to him, the Lord who is full of mercy. But again, I would notice, taking the two passages together, 
That no one ever really came to Jesus, Matthew 11, until he saw that he was the Lord. Until he realized who he was and what he was capable of, Matthew chapter 10. Only then will he come. And having seen who he is, what we will discover in ourselves is that we will treasure him above all. And nothing will be as precious to us as Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God, he tells us in Matthew 13, verse 34, is like a man finding a treasure for which with joy he selleth all. William Guthrie, where true justifying faith is, a man closes with him at all hazards. He resolves to forego all rather than to forego Christ. Beloved, when I say this, I am not making justification come by the law, not even this first law. But I am telling you that idolatry as forbidden here is incompatible with saving faith. It is utterly incompatible until you really believe Jesus is Lord and Savior so that you treasure and value him above all, which is indeed what saving faith is so that you have no other gods besides him. Then he cannot save you and he will not save you. He says of such, you are not worthy to be my disciples. Nor. Would you desire him to do so anyways? But once you find that you really do treasure him above all and that everything else appears to you as dung, as refuse and worthless nothings, that you might know that you have him and that in having him, you have that righteousness that could not be found in the law, not even this law, even the righteousness of faith that comes as a gift. Then. You will know what it is, as Paul says in Philippians 3, to win Christ and to be found in him and to be saved by him. And having this experience of grace in coming to Christ, you will understand why no one can be his disciple in no other way. Amen. And let us respond now to God's word by standing together and singing hymn number 122.